Coaches, how's it going? Thank you for checking out Keep Your Pads Down, where we are a podcast for the men in the trenches. And today's guest, although not a football coach, does know a thing or two about life in the trenches. That's right. I am honored to have on my granddad, General Robert Taylor, on to talk with us about his life, military career, leadership, amongst other things. And I got to tell you that this was my toughest recruiting job for a podcast episode yet. It was not an easy thing to get my granddad to agree to come on and talk with me, but he did. And true to form, from the word go of our interview, he threw me for a loop. Okay, so I called my granddad the day before our conversation. I thought we mapped out a plan for what we were going to talk about, things that we were going to cover. And so then I called him the next day to record. And from the word go, he threw me for a loop. I said, hey, you ready to get started? And he said, no, let me tell you how this thing's going to go. And he started firing questions at me about leadership, which we were going to talk about. But I thought in my plan that I was going to be the one asking the questions. But as it turned out, he started out asking me questions. And so when our episode opens, we're in the middle of that conversation. And then we'll back up and we'll ease into his military career and some things he's learned along the way. So thank you for indulging me and for checking us out today. I'm really excited about this. Proud of my granddad and proud of the things that he's accomplished. But more than anything, I'm proud of the example that he's set for me and the person of influence that he's been for me in my life. My granddad was born in Kiwana, Texas. He joined the Marines at the age of 18 and saw action in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam before retiring in 1975 as Brigadier General after a distinguished 32-year career in the United States Marine Corps in which he received a number of honors and awards, including the Distinguished Flying Cross for Extraordinary Achievement during World War II, a Silver Star for his gallantry and intrepidity in action during the Korean War, and also another Distinguished Flying Cross for Extraordinary Achievement while participating in aerial flight in Korea as well. He also received a Legion of Merit for Exceptionally Meritorious Conduct and Performance of Outstanding Services for the Government of the United States as Commanding General, Task Force Delta, and Assistant Wing Commander, and then received a Gold Star in lieu of a second award of the Legion of Merit, this time as the Commanding General Marine Corps Air Station El Toro from May 1974 to July 1st, 1975. Now, this won't be the smoothest episode you've ever heard from us. There's going to be some repeating of questions. My granddad, frankly, puts me in my place like I'm 12 years old again, and I lock the keys in his truck. You're really just having a front seat in our conversation. Another little note about this episode, you'll hear my granddad reference a book or things that he wrote down, and you'll hear me reference it as well. Uh, So for Christmas... Uh, my mom gave me and my two brothers a really awesome gift. A few years ago, she actually had my granddad sit down and basically write out the details of his military career from the time that he joined up to the time that he retired, because a lot of those things none of us knew about. True to form for most military guys, my granddad didn't talk about his military career much, and there's a lot of stuff that before this, before he wrote this stuff down, I didn't know about him and still don't know and probably never will. But anyway... Uh, She put all those things that he wrote down together in a book, along with some pictures uh, from his military career. It is the coolest gift that I have gotten in a long, long time. And when you hear him make a reference to things that he wrote down or hear me make a reference to a book, that's what I'm talking about. Coaches, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy my conversation with my granddad, General Robert W. Taylor, on today's episode of KYPD.
you have had a lot of success in the job you took over and you have pursued as coach. You had you had some successes, obviously, in all of these endeavors. And I want you to tell me, what do you think you did that made guys like and want to work for you in achieving your goal? Okay. Well, um, I think first, the first thing that I, that I that I did as far as just getting guys to believe in me was that uh, I tried to be as real as I could and work hard uh, and not just talk a good game, but but actually get in there and and work. Um, if you're talking about the kids, you know, talking about working with with kids, I think building relationships with them and letting them see that I care about them as a person and not just a football player. Uh, I think that really helps me uh, get everything, get 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 all that I can out of those guys. As far as working with other coaches and being in a leadership position with other coaches, again, I think that it's it's keeping your mouth shut and just going to work. And and you're describing a, a great deal of things that I <clears throat> consider you've done well at, and you've got and you 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 set up a little scheme that I tell you you. You learned right away, first of all, what you had to work with. Right? Right. Who they were, where they came from. When you get familiar enough that they trust you and they communicate with you on their level. So there's there's the thing that you you developed, not in the words I would put it, in getting them to understand you were their hard worker. You were on their side and you were pulling for them. Yeah. So they got to know that does he mean that really? Well, then you turn around and show them you're there early, stay late, you do whatever you have to do to uh, kink out the kinks, you know, and jerk out the kinks without upsetting the cart. Yeah. And it, it works with almost any new outfit you go into. You know, that's where you start. And I think the old deal I've always told my boys growing up you're going out and working in the summer <clears throat> at a little construction job. And that's the teenager's summertime job. And I said, I want to tell you this to start with. You'd be the first one there, get your gear ready to go. You'd be the last one there if they need somebody to do a little bit extra at night and do it well. And I said, right away, you established yourself as a guy who knows what's going on. I know it, uh, and it works all the time. Everybody gets laid off, you're the last one. So the people that can instill that in a person, like whoever they went for working on this construction, on, he, he, he develops his team that is, quote, reliable and understandable. So those are, those are things I think make up leaders. That I'm, I'm, I know you think I'm jumping all over the globe, but these are leadership traits I'm talking about that I tried to develop from the very get-go in my life and saying, you know, I never was one of the rich kids on the, in the town, but I was one of those that always had a job and always was reliable. And I think in, I'm developing leadership skills Without knowing it, I don't know what a leadership is at those days. What are you talking about leadership? You know, as a kid or growing up, 
you think a lot about it? No. Uh-uh. As, a, as, a, as a subject or a leader? Not as a kid, I didn't. No. And so what do you do? You develop it. And I think that's what a lot of you guys have done, and that's what I hope all my kids have. And that's what I, as my position in a, as a leader, would say, I want to see the people I'm with understand their importance and what they're doing and respect the guy that pays him off at the end of the day and show some respect for others in the job and in whoever he's working for. If you can't respect the guy you're working for, uh, you know, if he can't gain the respect of people that work for him, then he's got a near impossible job. Right. So that's the, that's the trait you want to develop. And I think you've done a lot of that yourself. And, and this, by osmosis, like a lot of mine was just osmosis. And when you look back, you say, oh, that's what it was. I mean, that that's where I picked that up. Yeah. You know, it's like like I was talking when I should have been listening to one of my bosses one time, and he said, son, you missed a golden opportunity to keep your mouth shut. And I said, right. And you know what? I remember it to this day. Yeah. Uh, and and that helped me with when I'm talking and dealing with people that, you know, there's a way to to, uh, to connect. And sometimes it says, it just says it like it is. Shut up. Uh, am I making any sense at all to you? Perfect sense. So let me ask you this, because you said that you didn't think about it as a kid and it sort of just happened by osmosis. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and who your early influences were that you kind of look back on and count those guys as the people who influenced you and helped develop those qualities in you, maybe when you didn't even realize it at the time. Mine, mine was a whole lot different, of course, you know, because I never had a dad. Right. Never had the male, in our, except my brother, who's six years older than me, and he was, he was my male image. He was all state center and the football team. He's a, he's a hard-working guy, physically fit and pretty good in the head. And uh, he knocked me, knocked me around when I needed to be knocked around and sometimes when I didn't. But, uh, so I started along at that level. Going through school, uh, there was the, the uh, West Side Richer boys and the poor boys, ones that uh, I call, we, you know, there is that side of town, the east side and the west side. And I was an east sider, and uh, I didn't have a dad, and uh, we we were known as just those poor folks. We weren't the poorest around, by sure, but there, there was a division there. So in that, I learned to find somebody I could have. In my fun times, I found it a guy who also didn't have but a mother, and he and I did a lot of hunting and fishing when we could get a chance to. So I learned, I started learning a little bit. Then I, then I had a friend whose dad was a, a, a worked for a wholesale grocery, and he became my surrogate dad. What and was his was name? He was the one that pulled the strings on his boy and me to the point that they had a car. He had, in his business, and if we wanted to use a car for a date, you know, 
and he was the big one that said yay or nay. But his boy Jim, I remember one instance, had pissed the old man off, and I said, and I would ask him for it, and he, he let me have the car. <laughs> <laughs> you know those kind of things. That I'm, I think I'm trying to tell you who were the people that I that I associated with. Right. I was in a little town, which means the the sheriff ain't no no at my level. He's God, right? Oh, sheriff Owens, he he carried a big stick, and I respected the law and order in that town because they didn't put you in jail; they just knocked you around and turned you into your parents who knocked you around some more. But but I I knew boundaries that were established. And where I had to live, so I, I think I'm, I'm getting around a, t- a long way to tell you that you learn the boundaries that you live in, but the traits that help you get there is you respect others and respect for your elders and your superiors in whatever rank you're working in. And I think that's part of your leadership development. What pushed you into the uh, to the Marine Corps? Absolute idea about the Marine Corps, other than I knew a guy that was in there, and everybody was joining, and nobody. I was too young to join. So after a year of college, I signed up, and I can sign up, and, and, and because I had a year of college, I got to go through the aviation program rather than go into the Marine Corps infantry and what have you. So I went in through that avenue. That's different than than the grunt Marines, as I learned to right. know. As I went, you're you're a supporting element of the fleet Marine Force, just like artillery is. They're not they're not the ones carrying the rifles, shooting the guns, whatever. They're the, they're the supporting element of the whole team, which is I was part of. So when I got a chance to go uh, select. When I went in there, I was, I was enlisted. They enlisted me, and I, I had that year's college, so I got to go into the program. Well, you, you graduated. They let they, they gave you about a half-A chance of saying what you wanted to go, Marine or Navy. And by then, I had learned enough about service, and I said, I want to be a Marine. And so I shifted right into the Marine Marine Navy, we trained together. Naval and Marine aviators went all the way through getting their commission and their wings in all the same program. I don't know if you knew that or not. No. But that that's, that's the avenue that I took. So, and during that time, I was nothing but a student the whole time, learning not just to fly, but other, other things that go with it and uh, you know, recognizing other airplanes, ships, whatever, and all the other little stuff that goes along other than just flying an airplane. So, and then I graduated as a second lieutenant. And then when I went into the Marine Corps, out of this training program into the Marine Corps. No, I graduated in Corpus Christi. Okay. And I went from... Uh, I went from uh, Corpus Christi. I went to Jacksonville, Florida, and learned to fly the, the old Corsair, the Bentley. 
Yep. All right. It was my first airplane. I had to get in it by myself and no no instructor. It was quite exciting. But from there, I went to California to El Toro, and we went into a pool to go over as replacements for those already flying in the Pacific and all that stuff. That's what I was trying to get in the first place. I didn't know it would take us so long. But, but that's where I, that's where I was uh, stationed when I went over to join a, a Marine squadron in, in the Pacific for the Battle of the Philippines back in Return to the Philippines. That was my, my war in the Pacific. So what, was your, what were your duties there uh, in the Philippines right there towards the end of World War II. In the whole war, we were nothing but aviators. I mean, you are carrying bombs, napalm, shooting your machine guns, and supporting the infantry. Always. Always supporting the other troops on the ground. And that's what I did mostly in all my whole career because all the Air-to-air shooting down MiGs, I mean, zero and all that was over when I got, finally got over there. So I never got a chance to shoot another airplane down, which was also one of the, as a young fella, fighter pilot, that was one of my desires, was get in there and knock down a few Japanese planes. But I n- never got the chance. In, in your training, backing up just a little bit, uh, in your training and, and preparation for getting over to get ready to go over there, did you ever have any close calls in your plane when you were training? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I had I had the engine freeze on me in that first in Jacksonville, and I dead stick that that, that, that means you're landing with no power, no nothing. Wow. And I uh, scooted down the runway with that thing and made it that, and made that which was could have been disastrous, but it, it worked out all right. I mean, I got it on the ground and got out of that one without a scrape. I got shot in the Philippines. I got my napalm stuff knocked off my airplane. Uh, you bailed out of one that was on fire? Is that right? Uh, what? You, you had to bail out of one, I think, in California that was on fire? Oh yeah, well I did that one was on fire. That was in, we were training still in that group waiting to go overseas. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that one that one caught on fire. I had to be able to that. One. Uh, well, so, so after World War II, what did you do? After World War II, I went over to uh, I went on to uh, up to Oakland. So whatever, I went back into, I, I, you read all of this. I'm sure I put I, I, I'm not asking. I'm not asking. college in right. San Mateo and was uh, helped start a Marine Reserve detachment and flew airplanes and let these weekend warriors. Yeah, I'm not know, asking you for my benefit. Come out and, and fly airplanes. We ran the base. I was in, in the, and that's where I was. And decided with my buddy, we I'd rather go to Dallas, so I transferred to Dallas, and that way I was not organizing anymore. I was just part of the of the weekend warriors in Dallas, and going to school at the University of Texas. Right. It and was, then that's where I was when I got called up to go to Korea. Right. 
Now, when I ask you this stuff, I know this stuff because I'm looking at it and you've told me. I say, when I ask you this, it's not necessarily for my benefit. It's for people who've never heard this before. So that's, that's why I'm asking you. And I know it might be obvious and, but I, and I'm, and I already know the answer to some of it, but I'm asking you anyway, just so people who don't know, no. So people who don't know will, will get the story, but you're, you're sitting in class there at, at UT, uh, and they come and get you and say, it's time to go to Korea. What was that tour like? What'd you do there? Well, all that, back then, I got a telegram, and I was in I was in uh, in summer school getting up, uh, and I don't know what course it was, but they delivered me a little message, and that said, "Report to Dallas for back, you know, for active duty." Right then, yeah, I had two weeks to get my little my little old convertible run up to Juana and go to Dallas and check in. And mobilized the troops there, and from there is when we went uh, over to Japan and rode a, rode a ship across. And when we got over there. We helped load out all the ships and things that were going to go over and make an invasion on Incheon in Korea. So that's what we did there. We didn't do any flying at all, and we were we were just helping load uh, helping them with loading ships out down on the dock down in Osaka and and, uh, and when you got back one, from Korea you had a pretty uh, when you got back from Korea you had a pretty significant life change right when i got back from when i got back from korea yeah i had a significant life change and, and all of that time that we've been telling about where i was is when and my your grandma and I had our foreign relations. I met her. I was still in California. Then when I got to Texas is when we dated. When I'd go get to go home during holidays or in spring break or whatever, and that's where I got to know her. During the time I was flying out of Dallas and Tulane, so that's when we decided that she wasn't going to marry me because I was going overseas. That was a good thought. Yeah. But you I got- told her, all she, you know, back then, I said, look, something happens to me, you get 10000 bucks. That's what they <laughs> give. <laughs> That's what you, the wives get. Uh, not a bad deal. A lot deal. of money back then. Yeah, yeah. And she didn't think that was funny. Well, you get back and you get married. Um, and this is now, we're talking 1951. And you moved to Pensacola for, um, where you were the flight, the, the primary flight instructor there. And, yeah. and so you went from there, from Pensacola to Camp Lejeune and then Amphibious Warfare School in Quantico. Talk about that, Amphibious Warfare School. What, what was that? Uh, what, what did you do there? Well, that's, that is a Marine Corps school that mails both pilots, all, all MOSs. Pilots, kid and cockers, you know, artillery, all the other, and infantry. That is where you go together and you do, you, you work. Actually, operations. You run, you run little short landings. Like we, we went yeah. all the way down to Vegas and, you know, we observed some landings on, and 
worked out some of tactics and things that, that included it was strictly amphibious, meaning everything amphibious. Right. From loadout to loadout and fall off on the beach, support from air and support from artillery and naval gunfire and those, all those things you study the use and proper use of and whatever. So that's what that school was. Intermediator school. My own, my only real war that I was really involved in, in the, in the truth was in Korea. When we went through that whole Korean thing up through the chosen frozen reservoir and I ended up flying those little teeny airplanes around with a cloth side on them. Oh, wow. And I'm sure that, I think that's probably in the book. Yeah. Little things I wrote probably. Yep. Uh, after, so, so after, um, after you left Quantico, y'all, I, I think y'all went to Cherry Point, South Carolina, and you liked that uh, that stop or that went tour. To Cherry Point. I see it in the in the interim. I had lost my I had lost not my wings, but I was I was transferred. When, that's when I went from Reserve Marine, which all through forever had been a Reserve. We made a decision that if we we're going to stay in the Marine Corps, I'm going to go regular because Reserve officers never really got much higher. Lieutenant Colonel was and they just right. weren't the same as lifers, they call them. Right. Regular. So when I went regular, they gave me an old 3 oh shit. The MOS, we call it, for infantry. Grunt. Yeah. Walk. Yeah. And so there's where I went and as an as a executive officer for a Marine Rifle Company which I went on and worked my way up, and that guy moved on, and I became CEO of a rifle company. And I'm, I'm not flying now. Right. I'm, I'm not. They didn't take your wings away. I just, my occupational specialty was not flying. And right. I had it, but it wasn't used. Well, when I went to that amphibious warfare air school, they all of a sudden, they had, Ended up, they needed more aviators, and so they ended up jacking me back into aviation by a real quirk. This is really no significance worldwide, but what they thought was that the guys who were promoted to our rank, they had cut it off so none of us would be eligible to switch back into aviation. There were six of us that were, and I was one of them. So I went back in aviation. That's when we went to Cherry Point, and I flew my first jet. Yes, and and not long after that, you went back to Japan for a tour over there, uh, and that was right after, you know, y'all were waiting around. My dad was born on August 7th, uh, 55, and you yeah. left a few, day, a few days later, a few weeks later, uh, middle of August, to go to Japan. And so just, just sort of a, a question here, you know, now at this point you have three boys, uh, and, and you're leaving to go uh, overseas for a year and you have a brand new son. Yeah. What, what was that? What was that? I mean, I just can't, a lot of us who are listening to this probably couldn't imagine doing that. Um, what, what was that like? How, what? what was that conversation? You can't what? What was that like? I, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine doing well, that. I, you know, the feelings you get in a situation like that, 
you are the English major. You tell me how you how your heart turns over when you <laughs> know you're leaving your boys and your wife yeah. for a year. Yeah. It breaks your friggin' heart. You don't like it. Yeah. But you're doing it because that's the way that's our Marine Corps life. That's the way you work it. Did you, did, did you, even at that point, because I know when you talked about when you were young, you know, you're eager for to see action. Did that change as a, as you became a family man? Did you still have a pull to go and see some action and, and fight? Um, or was it? Oh, no, 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 no. Let me, let me get you straight on this. All right, there is no war. But right now, even as we speak, we've got Marines all over both oceans ready to respond to either catastrophes weather-wise or, or bullet-wise. We're there. It's called a ready force. The Army or Navy, nobody can respond like we do because we're stationed there and don't have families and stuff with us like the Army and the Air Force. Those, they go overseas. They take their family with them. The, the fleet marine force, which I was always in, that part of the marine force, you you don't take your family. Okay, they, they're not part of the scheme. You you know you may move from one place to the other and leave them hanging out somewhere while you're gone somewhere else. Right. That that's the big scheme. Whether you understand it on a working level or not, doesn't matter. We, it's a bigger picture than that. You're strategically in position to operate. In fact, we went from Japan to, to Philippines overnight. Our whole outfit, boom. We're, we work out of boxes that can be loaded in, on pallets, take our, all our maintenance gear and stuff, fly the airplanes out, and we went from Japan to Japan, to uh, Philippines to be down there to respond to a bunch of dancing around and went on by some stuff that was went on then with terrorists and other things. So we were down there for, for a little, quite a while, and then we went back to Japan. So you can see if you had family dingling around wherever your next place would be, we that doesn't work. Right. Right. Well, yeah. So you're just on, you're just on your own. You're just working, you're working your, your team and keeping them on the alert. We were firing gunnery. We fire, while we are in Japan, we were firing gunnery off the east coast of uh, the gunnery range off the east coast of Japan. And that was part of our duty as, as ready force. We were turning Russian bombers around and heading them back to Russia. Wow. I, I flown the wing on a big old Russian bear. That co-pilot did, and I jammed it right up against his wing. He's giving me a move out, move out, but they turn around. They turned around and went back home. That's part of why we're there. We, yeah. were, we were on duty, and like we speak this minute, we are today. Right. We've got people ready to move at any time, just on a drop of a hat. Now that's part of my job while I was overseas without family, every time. Well, when y'all got back, when you got back from that tour, uh, you spent some time in Irving, and then you y'all moved to Austin. And that's where you got your yeah. degree from UT. Uh, and then from there, yeah. you moved to Beaufort, South Carolina. This is 1960. Uh, and I know that was one yeah. of your favorite uh, assignments. Uh, and then it didn't really end well for you, or at least at the time. I know that was this was sort of a big moment in your career. 
and kind of a letdown. So, so talk to me about that, uh, what you did there in Buford and, and, and what happened there at the end. Well, uh, when I, when I went to the, uh, in the first place, when I went to Irving, I was, I was back in one of those Marine Reserve detachments running that, which I was just in it before. Now I, I, that was regular job, full time station there. That part, I'll, I'll rip them back over here now. We went from from Austin to to, to uh, Buford, and I was lucky enough to get in there and get to be executive officer of an F eight squadron. That's number two in command of that. Our job there was training and uh, testing gear. This doesn't make sense to you, stuff like that, but we had certain gear we were putting in airplanes to help identify other airplanes. We were experimenting with that kind of stuff. And we kept a, a, a group down at uh, Guantanamo Bay and fired our gunnery range down there and were on hand for anything that popped up in that part of Cuba or anywhere in that area. We were cocked and ready and sitting there doing that, right working out of Buford. And while I was in that that squadron, we we also qualified aboard the Forest Hall with carrier got our carrier qualifications out of the way. And then right after that is sixty two. It's now sixty two and Lisa was born. I got promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. And I got a new squadron all my own, brand new F-8. So there's, there's, that's probably the three ding-dings, really nice things about yeah. Buford. And we, we had fairly decent quarters there on the river, the big broad river. And that was, that was a very good. And I was training that squadron to, to go overseas. Right. Because uh, I was getting about ready to go, so. I qualified those guys on the Saratoga. So we had another carrier that, that, that qualified them. And, that, and all the things I needed to qualify them and had them really sharp. I had those boys, they were, they could do it all. I wouldn't let them sit around playing AC Doocy. <laughs> it's foggy. I made them go fly in. Burned their AC Doocy board. <laughs> I remember telling them that every guy has got an assignment, engineering, works with engineering or material or whatever, but in the squadron, the guy that worked out, I told him to go get me again again. Jet fuel. I burned that AC Deuce board. I was a, I was a slam dunk bad guy. In the, but but that squadron was the sharpest one that ever come out of Buford. But when they took me away and gave it to this jackass he didn't know it front end from the back end I kept getting letters from my former pilots that worked with in my squadron saying we miss you <laughs> he won't let us fly if it's cloudy right <laughs> now did they tell you why they took that away from you oh there's no reason why uh, I, I think the real reason why was that one of my old buddies was up at personnel 
and they had a guy that was uh, due to, to move out of the position of head leadership at the Naval Academy. And he was in Washington, D.C. with a teenage daughter. And he just thought it'd be nice if I was over there and his daughter could come over there for the midshipman's dance and all that stuff going on. And he thought I was a good man to, to run the leadership curriculum for the Naval Academy. And so they laid the hammer down on me. Yeah, yeah. And then I got that change of assignment. That's where we went to the Naval Academy. And that squadron that you trained, they ended up going overseas then, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. as a unit. Right. The whole, the whole bus went, sure. Well, I, I was looking through your notes from last night, and I'm just going to read this because I thought this was interesting. I thought it was a great quote. It says, I was pretty upset to have to give my squadron up after all the hard work building a really good team. But orders are orders, and you go where they send you. Semper Fi. Uh, that's I, right. I, that's, that's the mentality, right? Whether you like it or not, orders are orders. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, I, I think it's also interesting that, you know, you said you're a, a bona fide bad guy to these guys. But then they turn around and they're calling you saying they miss you. And there's, there is a lesson there. You know, we, talk, we opened up talking about leadership. There's a lesson there in leadership. Why do you think those guys preferred you, the hard-nosed guy, who burned their whoosie, whatsie, or whatever, you, whatever it was, board? Oh, yeah. Why, why do you yeah. think preferred you over the other guy? <laughs> there's a lot of instances in there. The guy that had that squadron before me was nothing he, he, they drank with him. They went to his house and they did all this stuff. And, and four of these guys got drunk at happy hour or whatever, and they showed up. They'd been, they'd go out and knock on their bosses. They was the, the head of the squadron. Go to his house and bang on the door or something. They came to mind, and here we were. I think Lisa was born. Yeah, yeah. Here's Lisa and our, our kids. We were inside our quarters. Here these guys are. They're obviously playing, had plenty to drink. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, aren't you going to ask us in? I said, I am for a fact. At 7 o'clock in the morning in front of my desk on the base. <laughs> Good night. Yeah. They the didn't... door and that's it. They were called, they called themselves later the carpet club. Because they were always getting called out on the carpet? That's what they, I call well, they called us that. Yeah, I yeah. called them on the carpet. I called them in, and they just gave that the nomenclature to go with it. That we were we were the carpet club, but we learned. I said the way you get to my house, that that house you went to, is my quarters. You get there by invite only. Yeah. Only. Yeah. Now get out of here. They did. <laughs> well, again, I, I think there's a lesson for us that. That um, at the time, I'm sure those guys didn't like didn't like you that much, and didn't you know? Well, what? you know what? It's funny about them. Those guys, they didn't dislike me. They just didn't know how to take it. They they went through a different a different change of leadership overnight. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they had, they learned. They and at first, you're right. They they weren't really happy with the way I was running water and flight. But pretty soon, they're pretty proud of themselves. They're the only squadron there that when it's foggy or something, uh, 
these other guys playing AC-DC in the ready room because they're not flying because it's foggy. And, and they were up flying GCA. Right. Flying instruments. And they were, you know, I made them do all of those kind of things instead of sitting around on a dusty. Right. Right. And, and it didn't take too long before that caught hold, you know. They're proud of that, the fact that all, all the stuff that they were doing, other guys couldn't do it, whatever. Yeah. Or worn out to, or, right. or held back on. Um, and and, and that's part of that. So you go from there to Annapolis to the Naval Academy to, 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 to be an instructor there, which wound up being a pretty good assignment for you, right? Well, actually, it, it, it can't hurt when it, I mean, that was a prestigious job. I mean, I can't blame my buddy for putting me there. It, it it was uh it was a prestigious job. And it turned out, of course, one of the kids loved the best because they were there watching everything, lacrosse and stuff they never heard of, canoeing and rowing and all that stuff. That was greatest probably one of the favorite of all uh, of basically lived on one yeah. of them. While you were there, you had a a student who wound up being a pretty big deal in the world of sports, especially for Dallas Cowboys fans. Who who was that? Yeah, Roger Staubach. Right. So so what? Yeah, Roger Staubach. Well, he he was just in a class up there with us, right? And my really my only encounter with him personally one 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 was in the Naval Academy when they on their senior year and they're getting ready to decide. The Naval Academy will not let just everybody go in the Marine Corps that wants to. They put a that didn't work for them. There's too many wanting to go in, so they put a line. There's only so many of them that are selected to go in the Marine Corps and the rest go in the Navy. Right. So he initially signed up to go in the Marine Corps, and I thought that's great, you know. And I found out and that was early in the in the semester. I found out later that he transferred to Navy. And that's when I had a sit two with him. I called him in and had that little thing saying, Good grief, what is this I hear? He decided to leave the Marine Corps and go into the Navy. I said, I, I thought, and I, I think I really said this, I thought we were going to get you in the Marine Corps and make a man out of you. And he had just got the Heisman. He didn't crack a smile. He didn't say anything except, Sir, I prayed about it, and I looked at what the duties that I would end up maybe having to do as Marine Corps, and I just, I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't, you know, I didn't feel like I could make the good Marine. And I thought that's good because don't, you know, we don't. That's I'd rather you don't go in if you don't want to go rather than. So that, that was it. I said, well, God bless you. Good luck. Yeah, that was the end of that. But that, that was my only encounter with him personally. But yeah, yeah, he was there. Yeah, and it's about this time that a lot of things were going on in the country. JFK was killed. You had the Bay of Pigs. Vietnam was was starting. Uh, and at this time, you're sent to Air War College in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which was a big deal. Uh, talk about that assignment. Well, it, I, it was my time to. To uh, go overseas, and I thought I, I, I'm ready. I figured they, I'm going to war. 
Instead of that, I got assigned to go to the Moore College. So I got hold of a general that was sort of a mentor for me, couple codger. And I said, How why is this happening to me? You know, you know my career. I worked with him and under him and around him the whole time. He says, That war that whatever it is and what it's gonna be will be going on. You Shut up. I'm not even going to say I got this letter from you, and you go to that war college. I mean, as to say, that's the next step if you want to make general. That's, that, that's the big college. Right. I mean, so I swallowed my Adam's apple a couple of times and went on to that. So that that was the, that was the deal behind that deal. Right. And, and so... Uh, eventually you did get orders to go to Vietnam, right? Well, I got orders to go to Vietnam and got all the way to San Francisco and got transferred to Iwakuni, Japan. Ironically, the guy that was CEO of Iwakuni was was the boss when I had that best squadron in Buford. And he wanted me there. He, he personally picked me out to go there. Because yeah. he liked what I did at Buford, which hacked me off no end. Because my buddies went on to, to Vietnam. So I worked my way forever, ever, ever. To, I said, I'll get a replacement for you. I, I cried on his shoulder enough that he let me go. And I got this jerk they had in Vietnam. He was a, a colonel. And by the way, I made full colonel while I was there. That was a big promotion. Yeah. yeah. And it, so I went to, uh, I'm not sure I made Colonel there. Anyway, I went to, I went on to Viet, to Vietnam then and joined the, the air group there and started flying uh, combat missions in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, what were those combat missions? Same as always. Bombs, rockets, napalm. Yeah. And an airplane, if you could ever get one down below the DMZ, but the Air Force had the had the lock on airplanes in the air, always did. So we we had uh, our all our air helicopters and everything we had was uh, the support of the troops. Like I told you at the very start of this conversation, right? We were supporting arms, which we always were. When you Take were your deck right down the barrel of of those. Uh, AA and all that stuff and drop stuff on. It was not. It's lucky it didn't get shot down, but yeah. we did good. We didn't lose too many pilots there. In the summer '67, uh, you got you received orders to go to the Pentagon, and '67, uh, yeah, yeah, '67, and and so, and then you became the director of Amphibious Warfare School in Quantico. Uh, why was that tour significant? I don't know what's significant about it, but the, but the, I had a I had a fairly responsible job in the in the in the Pentagon, working in out of a what they call Op Four. That's three uh, operations, four is material or, or uh, logistics, and I was I, I was in. Uh, 
what they call SPASM, as Special Assistance for Strategic Mobility. So I ran a smaller, smaller detachment within yeah. the, within that big organization or with, under Hitch and Enthoven and McNamara. Terrible, terrible, terrible time. That was ugly. And I, I was scheduled for three years, but now I'll get to into some more Marine Corps stuff. Marine Corps has a way of these guys that they, they try to go up personnel and get an assignment to a job that's a promotable job. If the last guy there got promoted to colonel, you know, or whatever, well, this was a full colonel's job. At the original amphibious warfare school I went to, now I'm director of it. If being the director of that, it was a full colonel's job. And he, he uh, uh, was usually that, that colonel and did promoted to general. That was, that was a promotable job, as they yeah. call it in Marine Corps. That was one of those choices. Well, for the last three, four years, nobody, nobody had gotten promoted that was head of that school. Right. So nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted to go there. Yeah. So the Commandant of the Marine Corps talked to me, and he said, would you like that school? I said, if you get me out of this Pentagon six months early, I bet I would. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be glad to take it. And I figured I was not going to go beyond colonel anyway, and I was a full colonel. And uh, so anyway, uh, he sent me down there. And was it there that you made that you made Brigadier General? That's correct. I, I've heard you tell me before that when taking a job, always take the job that no one wants. And that sounds like that's what you did there. Why? What are your reasons behind that? Why take the job that no one else wants? Well, I just told you, you weren't listening. <laughs> I, I would have taken a job anywhere to get to heck out of the Pentagon after two and a half years on McNamara and Hitchin Intel. Well, I guess I, okay. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is when you take a job that's that it's kind of a hot potato job and it's and it's been down or it's it's an underperforming or underachieving job. I guess the benefit and this is what I'm what you've always told me. This is why I'm bringing it up. The benefit of taking that job is there's only one direction to go and that's up. And yeah, and you can really make that's a name. Right. That's part of the deal that went with it. Okay. That's right. Well, that's what I was trying but to get. I didn't you. search it out. The one originally where you probably heard me say it is when I went from Cherry went to Cherry Point yeah. from to fly jets the first time, they gave me a job as material officer. Okay. And I and I went into the boss of that outfit and said, Is there any chance I can get into operations where you schedule airplanes and the missions and all that? He says let me tell you something. And that's when he told me this story. He said, when you go to a new squadron, a new thing, before you check in, you go into the adjutant and get a copy of the last Inspector General report. Inspection. And you go through that sucker and you find one that needs some help. Didn't do too good. Right. And you, you take it. Because you take one of these where you got a shining armor 
you in for real competition for that job. Plus, this one, if you're going to stay in Marine Corps, you're learning more than just the operation. You're learning some of the material side or, you know, that's fine. So that was a little lecture I got from that guy. Who, by the way, I served with him after that a couple of times. Well, yeah, so that's what I was trying to get you to, to talk about, I guess. Um, but you had, from there, you had, I guess it was in 71, was that your last tour? It was at what? In 71, was that your last tour overseas? Yes. Uh, and that one came uh, because you had three guys in front of you retire in order to avoid going overseas. And so, uh, tell me if I'm, I'm getting this right. You got your orders on Thursday and you left on Sunday to go overseas. That's right. I went over I went over to take over as a commanding general of Task Force Delta. And you were there for thir- and, 13 months. And assistant wing commander for the 1st Marine Air Wing, which was in Iwakuni, Japan. But my flag and my, my bump primarily was down in Thailand. At Nampong, Thailand. Right. And I had a test force down there. So that was my last overseas time. And then from there, you, you come back home. Uh, eventually, you go out to El Toro. Uh, yep. And you are the, is it was it assistant wing commander, and then you're promoted? That's right. I, when I got in there, I was assistant wing commander. And that was your final, that was really your final post, correct? No, no. Uh, before you were promoted on the base, I was I was assistant wing commander. Up to this time, my whole career has been Fleet Marine Force. Remember what that is? Yes. Okay, that's different than bases where you run bases and run right. upkeep of all these stations and things. They're not wartime assignments. They're they're base assignments. Right. So anyway, I uh, the uh, the guy that was was the wing commander retired, and so for a brief time there, I forget how many months, I was, I was, I got to be commanding general of the Third Marine Air Wing, which stationed at El Toro. That's all the airplanes flying at El Toro, all the training and everything. I was in that, I was in that outfit. I was, I had, I was the wing commanding general of those guys. Well. I got passed over for two-star. The guy who was running the base, which is on the same base, I mean, we share the same base because he runs the base and I'm running the airway. Right. Okay, he was a big buddy with with the guy, the system commandant, who was starting to stack the board on who got promoted to general. The crooked had a deal that went on, but it, it has to do with why. I was not on the team, as they call it. When you get to that level, I wasn't on the team. But the guy who was running El Toro was. He got promoted to two-star, so we switched jobs. He took over the wing. I took over the station. And I was in CD of El Toro and commander of air bases western area, which included Yuma, and a couple of other bases in, in the western area was under my command as the commander and CD El Toro. 
and that's my last. That one, uh, I retired out of that one. And, and from there, 1975, moved to Cedar Park, where y'all have pretty much, between Cedar Park and now where you live in Georgetown, have been there ever since. So I, I want to ask you, because I've always seen, and I'm looking at them now, these pictures of when you were at El Toro uh, in 1974, uh, when President Nixon resigned, and you're greeting him. Uh, again, I'm looking at the picture. It's you and Grandma greeting him getting off the plane. Oh, yeah, this yeah, is when yeah. he flew... Yeah, that he, was part of my collateral duty. You right. Know what collateral is. Well, like those, uh, yeah. Additional. Ancillary or di- additional, yeah. Coaches. Yeah, it's, my, my primary job is running all the bases, and that that's the PX, yeah. the newbies, the gasoline for everybody, the grocery stores, right. everything. I, and the police department. I was, I was actually a mayor of that El Toro, meaning you right. had it. I was, except in this case, the mayor don't have a council. You are yet. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Though there's a joke that you always tell that you talk about that something you told Nixon and whether or not you actually told him and whether or not he actually responded the way he did. Um, oh yeah. What's that? What's that that you always say that you told him when he got off the plane? Well, I said it to you guys as a joke. I said it. I, I belong to a big prestigious. Uh, coffee group in uh, in Balboa Island and they were they were wondering 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 what they asked me later but anyway, anyway they asked me what you know what could you say to this guy and I said you know and I'm serious here I said Ben I'm, he's on his way home he's no longer president he's you know he's gonna land here and, and I've greeted him a number of times already out here. He and Kissinger and Ford and all those people. I and my job there, collateral duty, meeting all these people. And anyway, I said, "Well, I didn't know." And even when they opened the door there and he started down the steps, I still didn't know what what I was going to say. He, I, he was down there to the last few steps, and I said, "Watch your step." And he says, you should have told me that earlier. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I awesome. really said was, welcome back to California. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and whatever. But I, they, everybody got a big boot out oh, of Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that, that story is much better than what you actually said. Well, and so I guess as we wrap this up, because I know you got you, you are uh, I don't want to keep you away from stuff that you got going on this afternoon. I know that I got nothing going on. I talk to you now and you go to bed if you want me to. Well, I, I know this is a little bit out of your comfort zone and um and so I appreciate you you talking with me. Uh if you could just kind of give some quick words of wisdom to guys like me, what what would you say? Well, all I, all I would say is don't take any job for granted. Look for the one, one an opportunity that suits you because you're going to do better at what you do than take a job that has a lot of prestige but no, no you. You know what I'm saying, man? Right. But it didn't it, it you. Right. Right. Uh, that's. I think, in a big picture, that's really one of the most important ingredients. Well, Granddad, thank you so much. Is that all you need? Yes, sir. I got I, more. Well, I, we I know you got, I know you got plenty of uh, plenty, and 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 like you said, we could talk to uh, until 
tonight. But frankly, I'm the one that's got to end this thing because I'm supposed to be watching a five-year-old and a three-year-old right now. And uh, I hadn't heard any screaming yet, but I'm sure my time is running out. So really appreciate you you talking with me and to share some things with me. I love you. Love you too, granddad. Thank you. Thanks once again to my granddad for coming on and talking with us today. I know that was not easy for him. Definitely out of his comfort zone, as you can imagine. Being a military guy, he is very set in his routine and in his ways and doesn't even know what a podcast is, much less want to be a guest on one. But anyways, really appreciate my granddad coming on and talking with us today. Our quote of the day actually comes from a quote that my brother saw my granddad scrawl on his coffee cup one time, and he took a picture of it and thought it was a pretty good quote, and I thought it was good enough to include on this episode. And this is the quote that my granddad wrote on his coffee cup one day. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Hey, coaches, thank you for indulging me and for checking us out today. And as always, simplify and keep your pads down.